0: The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. All right, uh, let's see. We're going to start today with a wrap up of uh, our discussion of univariate time series analysis. And last time, we went through the uh, Wald Representation Theorem, which applies to covariance stationary processes, very powerful theorem. And uh, implementations of the covariance stationary processes are with ARMA models. Um, and we discussed uh, estimation of those models with uh, 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 maximum likelihood. And here on this slide, I just wanted to uh, highlight how when we estimate models with maximum likelihood, we need to have an assumption of a probability distribution for what's random. And in the ARMA structure, uh, we consider the simple case where the innovations, the a to t, are uh, normally distributed white noise. So they're independent and identically distributed normal random variables. And the likelihood function uh, can be maximized at the maximum likelihood parameters. and. Uh, there are uh it's simple to implement the limited information maximum likelihood where one conditions on the first few observations in the time series um, if you look at the likelihood structure uh for arma models the likelihood of or the density of an outcome at a given time point depends on lags of that dependent variable so if those are unavailable then that can be a problem uh, one can implement uh, limited information maximum likelihood, where you're just conditioning on those initial values, or there are full information maximum likelihood methods that you can apply as well. Uh, Generally, though, the uh, limited information uh, case uh, is is what's applied. Then the issue is model selection. And uh, with uh, model selection, the issues that arise with time series are issues that arise in fitting any kind of statistical model. Uh, Ordinarily, one will have multiple candidates for the model you want to fit to data. And the issue is, how do you judge which ones are better than others? Why would you prefer one over the other? And uh, if we're considering a collection of different ARMA models, then we could say fit all ARMA models of order P, Q with P and Q varying over some range, P from 0 up to P max, Q from Q up to Q max. And evaluate those different PQ different models. Um, and if we consider sigma tilde squared of PQ being the MLE of the error variance, then there are these model selection criteria that are very popular Akaike information criterion, Bayes information criterion, and Han and Quinn. Now, these criteria all have the same term log of the MLE of the error variance. So these criteria don't vary at all with that; they just vary with this second term. But let's focus first on the AIC criterion. A given model is going to be better if the log of the MLE for the error variance is smaller. Now, is that a good thing? Uh, meaning, you know, what is the interpretation of that practically when you're fitting different models? Well. The practical interpretation is the variability of the model uh, about where you're predicting things, our estimate of the error variance is smaller. So we have, essentially, a model with a smaller error variance is better. So we're trying to minimize the log of that uh, variance. Minimizing that is a good thing. Now what happens uh, when you have many sort of independent variables to include in a model? Well, you know, if you were doing a Taylor series approximation of a continuous function, you know, eventually you'd sort of get to probably the smooth function with enough terms. But um, suppose that the actual model it does have a finite number of parameters, and you're considering new factors, new lags of independent variables you know, in the autoregressions. Um, as you add more and more variables, well, the, uh, there really should be a penalty for adding extra variables that aren't adding real value to the model in terms of reducing the error variance. So the Aki confirmation criterion is penalizing different models by a factor that depends on the size of the model in terms of the dimensionality of the uh, model parameters. So P plus Q is the dimensionality of the autoregression model. So uh, now with, um, let's see, with the BIC criterion, the difference between that and the AIC criterion is that this factor 2 is replaced by log n. So rather than having a sort of unit increment of penalty for adding an extra parameter, The Bayes information criterion is adding a log n penalty times the number of parameters. And so as the sample size gets larger and larger, that penalty gets higher and higher. Now, the uh, practical interpretation of the Aki information criterion is that it is very similar to applying a rule which says, we're going to include variables in our model if the square of the t-statistic for estimating the additional parameter in the model is greater than 2 or not. So in terms of you know when does the Aki information criterion uh, become lower from adding additional terms to a model? Uh, if you're considering two models that differ by just one uh, factor, it's basically if the t-statistic for the coefficient model coefficient on that factor uh, as a squared value greater than 2 or not. Now, you know, many of you uh, who have seen regression models before and applied them in particular applications would probably say, I, I really don't believe in the value of an additional factor unless the t-statistic is greater than 1.96 or 2 or something. Uh, but the accurate confirmation criterion says the t statistic should be greater than the square root of 2. So it's, it's sort of a weaker constraint for adding variables into the model. And uh, now why is it called an information criterion? I won't go into this in the lecture. I'm happy to go into it during office hours. But um, there's notions of information theory and kullback leibler information of the model versus the true model and trying to uh, basically maximize the closeness of our fitted model to that. Now, the Han and Quinn criterion, let's just look at how that differs. Well, that is, uh basically has a penalty midway between the log n and 2. It's 2 log log n. So this has a penalty that's increasing with size n, but not as fast as log n. This becomes relevant when we have models that get to be very large because we have a lot of data. Basically, the more data you have, the more parameters you should be able to incorporate in the model if they're sort of statistically valid factors, important factors. Um, And the Han and Quinn criterion uh, basically allows for modeling processes where really an infinite number of variables might be appropriate, but you need larger and larger sample sizes to effectively estimate those. Uh, So those are the uh, criteria uh, that can be applied with um, uh, time series models. And I should point out that, um, let's see, if you took sort of this factor 2 over n and inverted it to n over 2 log sigma squared, that term is a co- basically one of the terms in the likelihood function of the fitted model. So you can see how this criterion is basically manipulating the maximum likelihood uh, value uh, by adjusting it for a, a penalty for extra parameters. Uh, the, uh, let's see. OK, next topic is just tests for stationarity and non-stationarity. Um, there's a uh, famous test called the Dickey-Fuller test, uh, which is essentially to evaluate the time series uh, to see if it's consistent with a random walk, we know that we've been discussing sort of lecture after lecture how simple random <coughs> walks are non-stationary, <coughs> and uh, the simple random walk is given by the model up here, xt equals phi xt minus one plus a to t, if phi is equal to one. Right, that is a non-stationary process. Well, if we can, in the Dickey-Fuller test, we want to test whether phi equals one. Or not, um, and uh, so we can fit the AR1 model by least squares, and define the test statistic to be uh, the estimate of phi minus one over its standard error, where phi is the least squares estimate, and the standard error, you know, is the least squares estimate, the standard error of that. Um, if our coefficient phi is less than 1 in modulus, so this really is a stationary series, then the uh, estimate phi phi converges in distribution to a normal 0, 1 minus phi squared. Um, And let's see, but if phi is equal to 1, so okay, so just to recap, that last second to last bullet point is basically the property that when f- norm phi is less than one, then our least squares estimates are uh, asymptotically normally distributed with mean zero if we normalize by the true value and one minus phi squared. If phi is equal to one, then it turns out that phi hat is super consistent with rate one over t. Now, uh, this super consistency um, is an issue of is related to, you know, uh, statistics converging to some value, and uh, what is the rate of convergence of those statistics to different values? So, um, in uh, normal samples, we can estimate sort of the mean by the sample mean, and that will converge. To the true mean uh, at rate uh, sort of root n uh, or one over root n um, with a uh, when we have a, a stationary or non-stationary random walk, the independent variables matrix is such that x transpose x sort of grow over n grows without bound. So um, if we have you know, y is equal to x beta plus epsilon, and beta hat is equal to x transpose x inverse x transpose y. Um, <coughs> the uh, the problem is well, and and beta hat is distributed as uh, ultimately uh, normal with mean beta and variance sigma squared x transpose x inverse. This x transpose x inverse matrix, when the process is uh, non-stationary, random walk, it grows infinitely. Um, uh, x transpose x over n actually grows to infinity in magnitude, just because it becomes unbounded. Whereas x transpose x over n, when it's stationary, is bounded. So, so anyway, so that leads to the uh, super consistency, meaning that it converges to the value much faster. And so this normal distribution isn't appropriate. And it turns out there's Dickey-Fuller distribution for this test statistic, which is based on integrals of diffusions. And one can read about that in the literature on unit roots and. Uh, Test for uh, non-stationarity. So there's a very rich literature on this problem. If you're uh, into econometrics, these you know, basically uh, a lot of time has been spent in that field on, on this topic, um, and uh, the the mathematics gets very very uh, involved. And uh, but uh, good results are available. So. Let's uh, see an application of some of these time series methods. Let me go to to the desktop here, if I can. In this uh, (coughs) supplemental material that will be on the website, I just wanted you to uh, be able to work with time series, real time series, and implement these uh, autoregressive moving average fits and understand um, basically how things work. So uh, in this, it um, introduces loading the R libraries and Federal Reserve data into R, uh, basically collecting it off the web, creating weekly and monthly time series from a daily series. Um, and it's a trivial thing to do, but when you sit down and try to do it, um, you know, it gets involved. So there's some nice tools that are available. There's the, auto, there's the ACF and the PACF, which is the autocorrelation function. And the partial autocorrelation function, which are uh, uh, used for interpreting series. Then uh, we conduct Dickey Fuller test for unit roots, um, and determine, uh, evaluate stationarity, non-stationarity of, of uh, the ten-year yield. And then uh, we uh, evaluate uh, stationarity and cyclicality in the fitted uh, autoregressive model of order two to monthly data. Um, and actually 1.7 there, that uh, cyclicality issue relates to one of the problems on the problem set for time series, which is uh, looking at with second order autoregressive models, um, you know, is there cyclicality in the, uh, in the process? And then finally, looking at uh, identifying the best autoregressive model using the AIC criterion. So let me uh, just page through and show you a couple of plots here. OK, well, there's the original 10-year uh, yield collected directly from the Federal Reserve website <laughs> over a 10-year period. And oh, here we go. This is nice. OK. OK. Um, let's see, this uh, section 1.4 conducts the Dickey-Fuller uh, test, and it basically. Determines that um, the uh, okay the p-value for uh, station for non-stationarity is is not rejected, and so um, let's see with uh, the augmented Dickey Fuller test, the test statistic is computed, its significance is evaluated uh, by the distribution for that uh, statistic. And the p-value tells you how extreme the value of the test statistic is, meaning how unusual is it. The smaller the p-value, the more unlikely the value is. The p-value is what's the likelihood of getting as extreme or more extreme a value of the test statistic. And the test statistic is evidence against the null hypothesis. So in this case, uh, the p-values range basically 0.2726 for the monthly data. Uh, Which says that um, basically uh, this is a, uh, or there is evidence of of a unit root in the process. Um, Let's see. Okay, there's a section on understanding partial autocorrelation coefficients. And uh, let me just state what the partial correlation coefficients are. You have the autocorrelation functions, which are simply the correlations of the time series with lags of its values. The partial autocorrelation coefficient is the correlation that's uh, between the time series and, say, its pth lag that is not explained by all lags lower than p. So it's basically the incremental correlation of the time series variable with the P flag after controlling for the others. Um. And then, uh, let's see, with this in section 8 here, uh, there's a function in R called AR, for autoregressive, which uh, basically will fit all autoregressive models up to a given order and provide diagnostic statistics for that. And here is a plot of the relative AIC statistic for models of the monthly data. And you can see that basically it it takes all the AIC statistics and subtracts the smallest one from all the others. So one can see that uh, according to the AIC statistic, a model of order 7 is suggested for this uh, treasury yield data. Okay. Then finally, because um, these autoregressive models are implemented with regression models, one can apply uh, regression diagnostics that we had introduced earlier to to look at those data as well. All right. So let's go down now. Two. Next topic. Okay. <laughs> you we'll see. full screen. Here we go. All right. So let's move on to the topic of volatility modeling. Um, the uh, Discussion in this uh, section is going to begin with just defining volatility, so we know what we're talking about, um, and then measuring volatility with historical data, uh, where we don't really apply sort of statistical models so much, but uh, we're concerned with just historical measures of volatility and their and their prediction. Then there are formal models. We'll introduce geometric Brownian motion, of course. You know That's the, one of the standard models in, in finance. But also Poisson jump diffusions, which is an extension of uh, geometric Brownian motion to allow for discontinuities. And then um, there's a property of these Brownian motion and jump diffusion models, which is models with independent increments. Basically, uh, you have different increments of the process O- over our um, disjoint increments of the process, basically, are independent of each other, which is a key property. With uh, when there's time dependence in the models, there can be time dependence actually in the volatility. And arch models were introduced initially to c- try and capture that and were extended to Garch models. And these are the uh, sort of simplest cases of uh, time dependent volatility models that w- we can work with and introduce. Um, and in all of these, the, uh, the sort of mathematical framework for defining these models and the statistical framework for estimating their parameters is going to be highlighted. And uh, while it's a very simple setting in terms of what these models are, uh, these issues that we'll be covering r- relate to uh, virtually all uh, statistical modeling as well. So let's define volatility. Um, Okay, in finance uh, is defined as the annualized standard deviation of the change in price or value of a financial security or an index. So we're interested in the variability of this uh, process, a price process or a value process, and we consider it on an annualized time scale. Now, because of that, it's, when you, when you talk about volatilities, it really is meaningful to, uh, communicate, you know, levels of 10%, you know. Um, you know, if you think of, uh, you know, at what level do uh, sort of absolute bond yields vary over a year? You know, is it uh, probably, is probably less than 5%. You know, bond yields don't, when you think of currencies, how much do those vary over a year? Maybe 10%. With equity markets. You know, how do those vary? Well, maybe 30 40% more. Um, with uh, the uh, estimation and prediction approaches, OK, these are uh, what we'll be discussing. It's different cases. So let's go on to historical volatility. Um, in terms of computing the historical volatility, we'll be considering basically a, a price series of t plus 1 points, and then we can get t period returns for those corresponding to those prices, which is simply the log of, or the difference in the logs of the prices, (coughs) or the log of the price relatives. So RT is going to be the return for the asset. um, And uh, one could use other definitions like sort of the absolute return, not take logs. Um, It's convenient in much empirical analysis, I guess, to work with the logs, uh, because if you sum logs, you get the sort of log of the product, and uh, so total cumulative returns uh, can be computed easily with sums of logs. Uh, but anyway, we'll work with that scale for now. Um, the, okay. Now the process R T, uh, the return series process, is going to be assumed to be covariance stationary, meaning that it does have a finite variance, and uh, the uh, sample estimate of that is just given by uh, you know, the square root of the sample variance. So we're basically, and we're also considering an unbiased estimate of that. Um, and if we want to um, basically convert these to annualized values so that we're dealing with a volatility, then if we have daily prices of which In financial markets, they usually in the U.S. they're open roughly 252 days a year on average. We multiply that sigma hat by 252 root, and for weekly root 52 and root 12 for monthly data. So so depend regardless of uh, this the periodicity of our original data, we can get them onto that uh, volatility scale. Um, The uh, now. In terms of prediction methods that um, uh, one can h- make with historical volatility, and there's a lot of um, work done in finance by people who aren't sort of trained as econometricians or statisticians. You know, they basically just work with the data. And uh, there's uh, a, f- a standard for risk analysis called the risk metrics uh, approach, where um, the approach defines volatility and volatility estimates, historical estimates, just using simple methodologies. And so let's just go through what those are here. Um, One can, uh, basically for a period, for any period T, one can define the sample volatility just to be um, the sample standard deviation of the period T returns. And so with daily data, that might just be the square of that daily return with monthly data it could be the sample standard deviation of the returns over the month and with yearly it would be the sample over, over the year also with intraday data it could be the sample standard deviation over intraday uh, periods of say uh, half hours or hours or and um, The historical average um, is simply the mean of those estimates, um, which uses all the available data. One can consider the simple moving average of these realized volatilities. And so um, that basically is using the last m for some finite m values to average. And uh, one could also uh, consider an exponential moving average of these uh, sample volatilities, where we have our estimate of the the volatility is 1 minus beta times the current period volatility plus beta times the previous estimate. And these exponential moving averages are really very nice uh, ways to estimate processes that change over time, and (coughs) they're able to track Uh, the changes quite well. And they they will tend to come up again and again. Um, This exponential moving average actually uses all available data. Um, And there can be discrete versions of those where you say, well, let's use not an equal weighted average like the simple moving average, but let's use a geometric average of the last m values in an exponential way. And that's the exponential weighted moving average that uses the last m. Okay, there we go. Okay. Well, with these different measures of uh, sample volatility, uh, one can basically uh, build models to estimate them um, with regression models and. Evaluate in terms of the risk metrics benchmark, they consider a variety of different methodologies for estimating volatility and sort of determined what methods are best for different kinds of financial instruments uh, and uh, different financial indexes. Um, and there are different performance measures one can apply, sort of mean squared error of prediction, mean absolute error of prediction. Uh, mean absolute prediction error and so forth to uh, evaluate different methodologies. And uh, on the web you can actually look at the technical documents for risk metrics and they go through these analyses. And if your interest is in a particular area of finance, you know, whether it's fixed income or equities, commodities or currencies, uh, reviewing their work there is very interesting because it does uh, highlight different aspects of those markets. Um, and uh, it turns out that uh, basically the exponential moving average is, is generally a very good method for many instruments. And uh, the uh, sort of discounting of the uh, values over time corresponds to having roughly between, I guess, a, a 45 and a 90 day period in estimating your volatility. Um, and in these approaches, which are, uh, I guess, um they're they're a bit ad hoc. Um you know there's the formalism in, in defining them is just you know basically just empirically what, what has worked in the past. Um the uh um let's see the the uh um you know while these things are, are ad hoc, they actually uh have, have been very, very effective. So let's uh Let's move on to formal uh, statistical models of uh, volatility, and the first class is uh, model is, is the geometric Brownian motion. So um, here we have uh, basically a stochastic differential equation defining the model for a geometric Brownian motion, and Chung-bom uh, will be going in some detail about uh, stochastic differential. Rep, uh, equations and uh, stochastic calculus for representing different processes, continuous processes. Um, and uh, the formulation is um, basically looking at increments of the price process S is equal to a, uh, basically a mu s of t, so a drift term uh, plus a sigma s of t, a multiple of dw of t, where uh, sigma is the volatility of the security price, mu is the mean return per unit time. dW of t is the increment of a standard Brownian motion uh, process or Wiener process, and this dW process, this W process, is such that its increments, basically the change in value of the process over between two time points, is normally distributed. With mean zero and variance uh, e- proportional, or variance equal to the length of the interval, um, and increments on disjoint time intervals are independent. Um, and if if you uh, divide the uh, well, if you divide both sides of that equation by s of t then you have ds of t over s of t is equal to mu dt plus sigma dw of t. And so the increments ds of t normalized by s of t are a standard Brownian motion with drift mu and volatility sigma. Um, Now uh, with uh, sample data uh, from this process, Uh, Suppose we have prices observed at times t0 up to tn. And for now, uh, we're not going to make any assumptions about what those time increments are, what those times are. They could could be equally spaced. They could be unequally spaced. Um, The returns, the uh, log of the price relative uh, price change from uh, time tj minus 1 to tj. are independent random variables, and they are in independent. They are their distribution is normally distributed with mean given by mu times the length of the time <coughs> increment, and variance sigma squared times the length of the increment. And this these properties will be covered by chung Boom uh, in some later lectures. Uh, so for now, we can just uh, know that this is true and apply this result. Uh, if we can, if we fix various uh, time points for the observation and compute returns this way, if it's a geometric Brownian motion, we know that this is the distribution of those the returns. Now, with that knowing that distribution, we can now engage in maximum likelihood estimation. Okay, if uh, the increments are all just equal to one, so we're thinking of daily data, say, or then the maximum likelihood estimates are. Simple uh, it's basically the sample mean and the sample variance uh, with one over n instead of one over n minus one of the MLEs. If delta j varies then uh, well that's actually a case for um, in, in the exercises now um, let's see does anyone in terms of um, well in in the class exercise um, the, uh, the issue that is important to think about is, if you consider um, a given interval of time over which we're observing this geometric Brownian motion process, if we increase the, um, the sampling rate of prices over a given interval, how does that change the properties of our uh, estimates? Basically, do we obtain more accurate estimates of the underlying parameters. And uh, as you increase the sampling frequency, um, it, it turns out that some parameters are estimated much, much better, and you get uh, uh, basically much uh, lower standard errors on, on those estimates. With other parameters, you don't necessarily. And, and the exercise is, is to evaluate that. Now, another issue that's important is the issue of sort of what is the appropriate time scale for uh, geometric Brownian motion. I mean, right now, we're thinking of, you know you collect data, whatever the periodicity is of the data, is you think that's your period for your Brownian motion. Let's evaluate that. Um, let me uh, go to another example. Um, let's see here. Okay, let's go. Control minus here. Uh. Okay, all right. Um, let's see. With uh, let's see, with, with the second case study, there was uh, data on exchange rates. Uh, looking for ex- uh, ex- uh, regime changes in exchange rate uh, relationships. And so we have data from that case study on different uh, foreign exchange rates. And here, uh, in the top panel, I've graphed the uh, uh, euro-dollar exchange rate uh, from the beginning of 1999 through just a few months ago. And uh, the second panel is a plot of the daily returns for that series. And here is a uh, histogram of those daily returns, and a fit of the Gaussian distribution for the daily returns if our sort of time scale is correct. Basically, daily returns are n- normally distributed. they're all equally days are disjoint in terms of you know, the price change um, and uh, so, they're independent and identically distributed under the model, um, and they all have the same normal distribution with mean mu and variance sigma squared. Um, okay, this analysis imp- uh, assumes basically that we're dealing with trading days for the appropriate time scale of the geometric Brownian motion. Um, one can, uh, let's see, Wh- one can ask, you know, well, what if. Uh, trading days really isn't the right time scale, but it's more calendar time. I mean, you know, the, price, the, the change in value over the weekends may correspond to price changes or value changes over a longer period of time. And uh, so, so this model really needs to be adjusted for, for that time scale. Um, the uh, exercise um, that allows you to consider different delta t's is, you know, shows you what the maximum likelihood estimates. You'll be driving maximum likelihood estimates if we have different definitions of time scale there. Um, but if you apply the calendar time scale to this uh, euro, let me just show you what the different estimates are of the mean, uh, annualized mean return and the annualized volatility. So if we consider trading days, for euro, it's 10.25 percent or 0.1025. If you consider uh, clock time, it actually turns out to be 12.2 percent. So depending on how you specify the model, you get a different definition of volatility here, um, and uh, it's uh, important to um, basically understand sort of what the um, Assumptions are of your model, and whether um, you know, perhaps uh, things ought ought to be different. Um, with uh, in, in statist- or stochastic modeling, there's an area uh, called subordinated stochastic processes, and uh, this is uh, basically the idea is um, if you have a stochastic process like geometric Brownian motion or simple Brownian motion. Um, Maybe you're observing that on uh, the wrong time scale. You, know, you may fit the geometric Brownian motion model and it doesn't look right. But it could be that there's a different time scale that's appropriate, and it's really Brownian motion on that other time scale. And so one can uh, formally, it's called a subordinated stochastic process. You have a different time function for how to model the uh, stochastic process. and uh, uh, the, subor- the evaluation of subordinated stochastic processes leads to consideration of different time scales. With, um, say, equity markets uh, and futures markets, sort of the volume of trading, sort of cumulative volume of trading, might be really an appropriate measure of the real time scale. Because that's a measure of, in a sense, information flow coming into the market through the level of activity. Um, so, anyway, I, I wanted to highlight how uh, with different Time scales, you can get different results, and uh, so that's you know, something to be evaluated. In looking at these different models, okay, these first few graphs here show the fit of the normal model with the trading uh, day time scale. Um, let's see, those of you who have ever taken a statistics class before or in applied statistics may know about normal QQ plots. Um, basically, if you consider, uh, if you want to evaluate the consistency of the uh, returns here with a a Gaussian distribution, what we can do is uh, plot the uh, observed, ordered, sorted returns against what we would expect the sorted returns to be if it were from a Gaussian sample. So under the geometric Brownian motion model, the daily returns are a sample independent an identically distributed random variable sampled from a Gaussian distribution. So the smallest return should be consistent with the smallest of a sample size n. And what's being plotted here is the theoretical quantiles or percentiles versus the actual ones. And one would expect that to lie along a straight line if the theoretical quantiles were uh, well predicting the actual extreme values. What, what we see here is that as you, the theoretical quantiles get uh, high, and it's in units of standard deviation units, the realized sample uh, returns are in fact much higher than would be predicted by the Gaussian distribution. And similarly on the on the low side. Um, so so there's a normal QQ plot that's used often in the diagnostics of these of these models. Then down here, uh, I've actually uh, plotted a fitted percentile distribution. Now, um, what's been done here is if we model these series as a series of uh, Gaussian random variables, then we can um, estimate or, or we can evaluate the percentile of the fitted Gaussian distribution that was realized by every point. So if we have a return of say you negative know, 2%, um, you know, what percentile is the normal fit of that? And you can just invert the normal uh, curve to, uh, or, or you can evaluate the, uh, the, the cumulative distribution function of the fitted model at that value to get that point. And um, what should the distribution of percentiles be for fitted percentiles if we have a really good model? OK, how many, uh, well, OK, let's think. At the, if you consider the 50th percentile, um, you would expect, I guess, 50% of the data to lie above the 50th percentile and 50% to lie below the 50th percentile, right? OK, let's consider, here I divided it up into 100 uh, bins between 0 and 1. So, so this bin is the 99th percentile. How many, uh, or how many observations would you expect to find in, you know, that uh, between the 99th and 100th percentile? This is an easy question. One percent, right? And so, in any of these bins, we would expect to see one percent um, if the Gaussian model were fitting. And what we see is that. Well, at the extremes, there are more extreme values. And actually, inside, there are some uh, fewer values. And actually, this is, is exhibiting a leptokurtic distribution for the uh, actual re- realized samples. Basically, the, the middle of the distribution is a little thinner, and it's compensated for by fatter tails. Um, but, um, but with this particular model, we can basically expect to see uh, a uniform distribution of percentiles across this uh, in this graph. The, uh, if you, we compare this with a fit of um, the uh, clock time, we actually see that clock time does a bit of a better job at getting the extreme, values closer to what we would expect them to be. So in terms of being a better model for the uh, uh, returns process, if we're concerned with these extreme values, we're actually getting a slightly better value um, with those. So um, all right, um, let's move on back to the notes and talk about The Garmin class estimator. So let me do this. All right. Uh, view full screen. Okay. All right. All right. So, uh, okay. The Garmin class estimator is one where we consider the situation where we actually have much. More information than simply sort of closing prices at different intervals. Um, you know, basically, uh, transact all, all transaction data is collected in financial markets, so there's really we have virtually all the data available if we want it or can pay for it. Uh, but um, let's consider a case where we expand upon just having closing prices to having additional information over increments of time that include the uh, open. High and low price over the different periods. Um, when you uh, so so, it, it, those of you are familiar with bar data graphs that you see whenever you plot uh, you know, stock prices over over periods of uh, weeks or or, or months, um, you'll be familiar with with having seen those. Uh, now the Garmin class uh, paper addressed you know how can we exploit this additional information to improve upon our estimates of uh, the close to close. And so uh, we'll just use this notation. Well, let's make some assumptions and notation. So we'll assume that mu is equal to 0 in our geometric Brownian of motion model. So we don't have to worry about the mean. We're just concerned with volatility. We'll assume that uh, the increments are 1 for daily, corresponding to daily. And we'll let little f between 0 and 1 correspond to, the uh, opening, the time of day at which uh, the market opens. So, so over a day from day 0 to day 1 at f, we assume that the, uh, the market opens. And uh, basically, the geometric Brownian motion process might have closed on day 0 here, so this would be c0. And it may have opened on day one at this value. So this would be O1. Might have gone up, then down, and then closed here with the uh, Brownian motion process. OK, this value here would correspond to the high value. This value here would correspond to the low value on day one. And then the closing value here would be c1. So there's a, uh, the model is we have this underlying Brownian motion process. It's actually working over continuous time, but we just observe it over the time when the market's open. And so it can move between when the market closes and opens on any given day. And uh, we have the additional information. Instead of just the close, we also have the high and low. So let's look at how we might uh, exploit that information to estimate volatility. Um, OK, using data uh, from the first period as we've graphed here, let's first just highlight what the close to close return uh, is. And that basically is an estimate of the one period variance. And so sigma hat naught squared is the cl- you know, a single period squared return. C1 minus C0 has a distribution which is normal with mean 0 and variance sigma squared. And um, if we consider um, squaring that, what's the distribution of that? That's the square of a normal random variable, which is chi squared, but it's a multiple of a chi squared. It's sigma squared times a chi squared one random variable. And with a chi-squared random variable, the expected value is 1. The variance of a chi-squared uh, random variable is equal to 2. So just knowing those facts gives us the uh, fact that we have an unbiased estimate of the, var- of the volatility parameter sigma, and uh, the variance is uh, 2 sigma to the fourth. So that's the volat- That's basically the uh, precision of close-to-close of, uh, close returns. If we look at, let's look at two other estimates. The, uh, basically the open-to-close return, sigma 1 squared, normalized by f, the length of the interval f. So we have uh, sigma 1 is equal to O1 minus C0 squared. OK. OK. Actually, why don't I just do this? I'll just write down a few facts, and then you can see that the results are clear. Basically, um, O1 minus C0 is distributed normal with mean 0 and variance F sigma squared, and C1 minus O1 is distributed normal to mean 0 and variance 1 minus f sigma squared. Okay, This is simply using the properties of the diffusion process over different periods of time. So if we normalize the squared values by the length of the interval, we get estimates of the volatility. And what's particularly uh, significant about these uh, estimates 1 and 2 is that they're independent. So we actually have two estimates of the same underlying parameter which are independent. And actually they uh, both have the same mean and they both have the same variance. So if we consider a new estimate which is basically averaging those two then this new estimate has is has the same is unbiased as well but its variance is basically the variance of this sum. So it's a half squared times this variance plus a half squared times this variance, which is a half of the variance of each of them. So this estimate has lower variance than our close to close. And um, we can define the efficiency of this particular estimate relative to the close to close estimate as 2, basically we, we get double the precision. Um, now, how many days would it, you know, suppose you had the open high close for one day. How many days of close to close data would you need to have the same variance as this estimate? No? because three data points No. No, that's, uh, uh, anyone else? One more, <laughs> four okay basically if if the variance uh, is is a, is a half yeah basically if you uh, you know to get the standard deviation or are, 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 are the variance to be uh i'm sorry the 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 ratio of the variance is two so no so it actually is is close to two um, i the, Let's see, Or 1 over n is the number. So it actually is 2. OK, I was thinking standard deviation units instead of the squared units. So I I was uh, uh, trying to be too clever there. So it actually is um, basically two days. So uh, sampling this uh, with this information gives you as much as two days' worth of information. So what does that mean? Well, if you want something that's as efficient as daily estimates, you'll need to look back one day instead of two days uh, to, to, to get the same efficiency with the estimate. All right, uh, there's the motivation for the Garmin class paper was actually um, a, uh, a paper written by Parkinson in 1976, which dealt with using the extremes of a Brownian motion to estimate the underlying parameters. And uh, when Chung talks about Brownian motion a bit later, I don't know if you'll derive this result, but in courses on stochastic processes, one does derive properties of the maximum of a Brownian motion over a given interval and the minimum and uh, it turns out that if you look at the difference between the high and low squared divided by 4 log 2 um, you know this is an estimate of the volatility of the process and the efficiency of this estimate turns out to be 5.2 which is uh, better yet well Garmin and class were excited by that and and Wanted to find even better ones, so uh, they wrote a paper that uh, uh, evaluated all different kinds of estimates. And I encourage you to you know Google that paper and read it because it's very accessible and it sort of highlights the you know statistical and probability issues associated with these problems. But uh, what they did was they derived the best analytic scale invariant estimator, which has this uh, sort of bizarre combination of uh, uh, different terms, but basically, we're using normalized values of the high low close, normalized by the open, and they're able to get an efficiency of 7.4 with this uh, combination. Now, scale invariant estimates um, in, in statistics, in uh, statistical theory, there, there are different principles that guide the. Uh, development of different methodologies, and one one kind of principle is issues of scale invariance. You know, if you're estimating a scale parameter, and in this case, volatility is telling you essentially how large is the variability of this process. If you were to say multiply your original data all by a given constant, then a scale invariant estimator should be such that. Your estimator changes in that case only by that same scale factor, so it's sort of the, the, the estimator is, is doesn't depend on how you scale the data. So uh, that's the notion of scale invariance. Um, the uh, paper Garman class paper actually you know goes goes to the nth degree and actually finds a particular estimator that has an efficiency of 8.4, uh, which is really highly significant. So you know if you are working with um, uh, modeling processes where you believe that the underlying parameters may be uh, reasonably assumed to be constant over short periods of time. Well, you'll over those short periods of time, if you use these extended estimators like this, uh, you'll get much more precise measures of the underlying parameters than from just using simple close to close data. All right, let's. Uh, introduce Poisson jump diffusions. Um, with Poisson jump diffusions, we have a basically a stochastic differential uh, equation for representing this model. And it's just like the geometric Brownian motion model, except we have this additional term, gamma sigma z d pi of t. Now uh, there's a lot of different variables But um, essentially, what we're thinking about is over time, (coughs) there's a Brownian motion process is fully continuous. There are basically no jumps in this Brownian motion process. In order to allow for jumps, we assume that there's some process pi of t, which is a Poisson process. It's a counting process that counts when uh, uh, jumps occur, how many jumps have occurred. So that um, might start at 0 at the value 0. Then if there's a jump here, it goes up by 1. And then if there's another jump here, it goes up by 1, and so forth. Um, And so the uh, Poisson jump diffusion model says we're going to this this diffusion process is actually going to experience some shocks to it. Those shocks are going to be arriving according to a Poisson process. If you've taken stochastic modeling, you know that that's a um, a sort of a purely random process. Um, basically exponential arrival rate of of shocks occur. You can't predict them. And when those occur, d pi of t is going to change from 0 up to the unit increment. So d pi of t is 1. And then we'll realize gamma sigma z of t. So at this point, we're going to have shocks here. This is going to be gamma sigma z1. And at this point, maybe it's a negative shock, gamma sigma z2. If this is 0. And so with this overall process, we basically have a shift in the diffusion up or down according to this, the, these values. And so this model allows for the arrival of these processes to be random according to Poisson distribution, and for the magnitude of the shocks to be uh, random as well. Um, now, like the uh, geometric Brownian motion model, this process sort of has. Uh, independent increments, which um, helps with this uh, estimation. Um, one can estimate this model by maximum likelihood, uh, but it does get tricky in that um, basically over different increments of time, the change in the process corresponds to the diffusion increment plus the sum of the jumps that have occurred over that inc- same increment. And so uh, the model ultimately is a Poisson mixture of n- Gaussian distributions. Um, and in order to uh, evaluate this model, uh, model's properties, moment generating functions can be computed rather directly with that. And uh, so one can understand how the moments of the process vary with these different model parameters. The likelihood function. Is uh, a product of Poisson sums, and there's a closed form for the EM algorithm, which uh, can be used to implement the estimation of the unknown parameters. And um, if um, if you think about uh, observing a Poisson jump diffusion process, if you knew that there was there were you know where the jumps occurred. So you knew how, where the jumps occurred and how many there were per increment in your data, then you could actually the maximum likelihood estimation would all be very very simple, and uh, because there sort of there's a separation of the estimation of the Gaussian parameters from the Poisson parameters. Um, when you have, haven't observed those values, then you need to deal with uh, uh, method, methods appropriate for missing data, and the EM algorithm. Is a very famous algorithm developed by the people up at Harvard, uh, uh, Rubin, Laird, and Dumpster, um, which um, deals with uh, basically if if the problem is much simpler if if you could uh, uh, posit there being um, unobserved variables that you would observe, then you uh, sort of expand the problem to include your observed data plus the missing data. In this case where the jumps have occurred. And you then do conditional expectations of estimating those jumps, and then assuming that those jumps had those uh, occurred with those frequencies, uh, estimating the underlying parameters. So uh, the EM algorithm is very powerful and has extensive uh, applications in in all kinds of different models. Um, I'll put up on the website a paper that um, I wrote uh, with uh, David Pickard and uh, his student, uh, Arshad Zakaria, which um, goes through the uh, maximum likelihood methodology for this. But uh, looking at that, you can see how, upon you know, with an extended model, um, how maximum likelihood gets implemented, and uh, I, th- I think that that's useful to see. All right, so let's uh, turn next to um, Arch models and um, okay, just as a bit of motivation, um, the uh, geometric Brownian motion model and also the Poisson jump diffusion model are models which assume that volatility over time is essentially stationary and. Um, with the sort of independent increments of those processes, the volatility over different increments is essentially the same. So um, the uh, arch models were introduced to accommodate the possibility that there's time dependence in volatility. Um, and volatility <coughs> and and so um, let's see if we uh, Let's see. Let me go. Okay. Uh, I'll uh, at the very end I'll I'll, I'll go through an example sh- showing that time dependence, um, and uh, you know, with with our euro dollar exchange rate. So. So the setup for this model is um, basically we look at the log of the price relatives Yt, and um, we model the Residuals to not be a constant of constant volatility, but to be multiples of sort of uh, white noise with mean zero and variance 1, where sigma T is given by this essentially arch function, which is says that the volatility at a given period T is a weighted average of the squared residuals over the last p lags. And so if there's a large residual, then that could (coughs) persist uh, and make the next uh, observation have a large variance. And so uh, this uh, this accommodates some uh, time dependence. Now, um, with this model, this model actually has parameter constraints, which are never a nice thing to have when you're fitting models. Um, in this case, the parameters alpha 1 through alpha p all have to be positive. And um, why do they have to be positive? So variance is positive. Right, variance is positive. So if, if any of these alphas were negative, then there would be a possibility that under this model that you could have negative volatility, which you can't. So we want to estimate these parameters with the, we need to, uh, if we estimate this model, to estimate them with the constraint that all these parameter values are are, uh, non-negative. So that does complicate the estimation a bit. Um, In terms of understanding how this process works, one can actually see how the ARCH model implies an autoregressive model for the squared residuals, which um, turns out to be useful. So the top line there is the ARCH model, saying that the variance of the t period return is this weighted average of the past residuals. And then if we simply add a new variable ut, which is our re- squared residual minus its variance to both sides, we get the next line, which says that epsilon t squared is basically an autoregression, follows an autoregression on itself, with the ut value being the disturbance in that autoregression. Now, ut which is epsilon t squared minus sigma squared t. What is the mean of that? The mean is 0. So it's almost white noise, but its variance is m- maybe going to change over time. So it's not sort of standard white noise. But it it's certainly un- uh, basically has expectation 0. It's also uh, the conditional independence, but there's some possible variability there. But what this implies is that there basically is an an autoregressive model where we just have time-varying variances in in the underlying process. Now because of that, one can sort of quickly evaluate whether there's arch structure in data by simply fitting an autoregressive model to the squared residuals and testing whether that regression is significant or not. And uh, that formally is a Lagrange multiplier test, some of the original papers by Engel go through that analysis. Um, and uh, the, uh, the test statistic turns out to just be the uh, multiple of the r squared for, uh, for that regression fit. And um, basically under the hypothesis that uh, there's, there's n- under a, say, a null hypothesis that there isn't any arch structure then this regression model should have no predictability, this arch model in the residuals. Basically, if there's no time dependence in those residuals, um, that's evidence of uh, there being an absence of arch structure. And so, under the null hypothesis of no arch structure, uh, that R squared uh, statistic should be small. It turns out that sort of n times the R squared statistic with p variables is asymptotically a chi-square distribution with p degrees of freedom. So, so that's where that uh, model come, comes in, where that test statistic comes into play. Um, and uh, the, in, in implementing this, the fact that uh, we were applying essentially the least squares with the autoregression to implement this likelihood rate or Lagrange multiplier test, um, but we were assuming, well, we're not assuming, we're implicitly assuming the assumptions of Gauss-Markov in fitting that. Um, this corresponds to uh, the notion of quasi-maximum likelihood estimates for, under un- for unknown parameters. And quasi-maximum um, likelihood estimates um, are used are extensively in uh, some stochastic volatility models. And it's essentially w- situations where you sort of use the normal approximation uh, or the second order approximation uh, to get your estimates, and they turn out to be consistent and efficient, uh, or not efficient, but consistent and uh, uh, decent. So, all right, the, uh, let's go to maximum likelihood estimation. Okay, maximum likelihood estimation basically involves you know, the hard part is defining the likelihood function which is the uh, density of the data given the unknown parameters. In this case, the data are conditionally independent. Every observation is conditionally independent of the uh, uh, or e, e, let's say each or the joint density is the product of the density of YT given the information at T minus 1. So the Basically, the joint probability density is the density at each time point conditional on the past, and then the density times the density of the next time point conditional on the past. And those are all normal random variables, so these are the normal uh, PDFs coming into play here. And so, what we want to do is basically maximize this likelihood function subject to these constraints. Um, and we already went through the fact that the alpha i's have to be greater than zero, and the uh, It turns out you also have to have that the sum of the alphas is less than 1. Now, what would happen if the sum of the alphas was not less than 1? Right. And you basically could have the process diverging. Um, Basically, these uh, autoregressions can explode. So let's go through and see. Let's see. Actually, we're going to go to GARCH models, Arch models next. OK. Um, <coughs> let's see. The uh, Let me just go back here a second. OK. Very good. OK. In uh, the remaining few minutes, let me just introduce you to the uh, GARCH models, Um, when um, well, okay, the the issue with with uh, okay the the GARCH models basically add uh, basically a series of past values of the squared volatilities, basically that's the Q sum of uh, you know past squared volatilities uh, to the S for the uh, equation for the, the volatility sigma t squared. And so um, you know it may be that very high order arch models are actually important, um, or, 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 or um, um, very high order arch terms are found to be significant when you fit arch models. Um, it could be that um, much of that. Uh, need is explained by adding these GARCH terms. And so let's just consider a simple GARCH model where we have only a first order ARCH term and a uh, first order GARCH term. So um, we're basically saying that this is a weighted average of the previous volatility, the new squared residual. And this uh, is. A very parsimonious uh, representation that actually ends up fitting data quite, quite well. And um, there are various properties of this Garch model, which um, we'll go through next time, but I want to just close this lecture by showing you fits of the arch models and of this Garch model to the Euro dollar uh, exchange rate process. So let's just look at that here. Okay. Okay, with the Euro dollar exchange rate, actually, um, there's a graph here which shows the autocorrelation function and the partial autocorrelation function of the squared returns. So is there dependence in this? You know, these daily uh, volatilities? And basically, there's these blue lines are plus or minus 2 standard deviations of the uh, uh, correlation coefficient. Basically, we have highly significant autocorrelations er, and very highly significant. <laughs> Partial autocorrelations, which suggests, if you're familiar with ARMA processes, that you would need a very high-order ARMA process to fit this uh, the squared residuals. Um, but this, you know, highlights how with the statistical tools you can I- you, know, you can actually uh, identify this uh, time dependence quite quickly. And um, here's a plot of the arch order 1 model and the arch order 2 model. And on each of these, I've actually drawn a solid line where the sort of constant variance model would be. So arch is saying that we have a lot of variability uh, about that constant mean. Um, And a property, I guess, of these arch models is that they all have sort of a. A minimum value for the volatility that they're estimating. You know, if you look at the arch function, that alpha naught you now is the constant term, it's basically the, the minimum value, um, which that can be. Uh, so there's a constraint sort of on the lower value. Um, then here's an arch 10 fit, which actually is uh, you know, basically looks, it doesn't look like it sort of has quite as much of a uniform lower bound in it. But one could go on and on with higher order arch terms. But rather than doing that, one can also fit just a GARCH 1-1 model, and this is what it looks like. So um, basically the time varying volatility in this process is captured really, really well with just this two parameter GARCH model as compared with a high order autoregressive model. And and this uh, it sort of highlights the issues or with the walled decomposition where you know a potentially infinite order autoregressive model will effectively fit most time series. Well, that's nice to know, but it's nice to have a parsimonious way of defining that infinite collection of parameters. And with the Garch model, a uh, couple of parameters do a good job. And then finally, here's just a simultaneous plot of all those Volatility estimates on the same graph. And so one can see the flexibility, increased flexibility, uh, basically, of the Garch models compared to the Arch models for capturing uh, time varying volatility. Um, so, all right, I'll we'll stop there for today. And uh, let's see. Next Tuesday is a uh, presentation from Morgan Stanley. So, And today's the last day to sign up for a field trip yeah